No greater words that we can speak to our own hearts every morning when we awake than, Lord Jesus, may we crown you Lord of all today in our lives. I think one of the ways, one of the very practical ways that we crown the Lord Jesus Lord at all is to be men and women who love his word and who are in his word. And so this morning, uh, before we start our passage in Isaiah, I want to bring your attention to a card that will be out on a little table uh, right at the office door. And what we've done for you is laid out the text of scriptures we'll be covering through uh, April 9th. And we've also laid out sort of a plan of action. And one of the things that helps me, especially with a very technical book like Isaiah, right? It's not like reading Ephesians or the book of John. We'd say amen to that, right? Uh, is I first read it in the ESV, and then I go to the message, which you can find online, and we've told you here how to do that. And I read it in the message, and it's sort of, oh, oh, I start, the clouds start moving. And then I go to just an overview. It's a, really a layman's commentary at sonniclight.com. That's on here as well. And um, um, you can click on study notes in the book of Isaiah and sort of read a little bit about that passage. And so by the time you get here on Sunday, there's two things happening. One, you really now are ready to hear at another level and digest it. And secondly, you can correct me if I get something wrong. You will probably have to correct Monty. It would be more likely that he would get something wrong. So... We know that ain't true. We know I'm the one that's going to mess up. I'm glad I didn't have the names he had last week. Mashasha. I would have called it Mashasha. Right? So, the Lord is kind to give us some good stuff. So let's turn with this morning to uh, Isaiah chapter 8, and we'll go through 9, 7 uh, this morning. Um, about 700 years before the prophet Isaiah came on the scene, we had another leader of Israel, and he was dealing with the fickle people of Israel. There's a long track record of the people of God, the people of the whole country of Israel being fickle and apathetic toward the ways of God. And this long history, we see sort of uh, something very unique, but something very familiar in Joshua 24. Joshua was that leader. Joshua leads the people in this very formal covenant renewal for one sole purpose. And the one sole purpose was to get a binding commitment on the part of God's people that they would start to live according to God's word. And in leading them in that covenant renewal, one writer called it a theological definition of the people of God that defines God and the God-man relationship. I put that at the top of your notes. Let me read that. Read that with me. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in those land you dwell. But as for me, Joshua says, in my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who has brought us out of the brought us and our fathers up to the land of 
out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, they say with great, great convictions, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. Everything is well. We know it's not. We know reading the Old Testament, and now as we stare at the book of Isaiah 700 years later, it did not go as planned. Our ability, mine and your ability to keep a vow like that is about the same likelihood of me dunking a basketball. Same likelihood of me making the Oklahoma gymnastic team, which Monty made. Same likelihood of Monty killing a turkey on his own. <laughs> we are terrible at keeping our word. We want it, but it doesn't happen. But let me be clear this morning. This morning, those of us who know Christ, who are God's true people, not because of our ethnicity as a Jew, but because of the shed blood of Christ, God has the same expectation of us that he had for those in Israel when Joshua made this covenant renewal. Let me read with you a passage from 1 Peter 1. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. This is to every believer. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform yourself to former lust, as was in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Isaiah calls God the what? The Holy One of Israel. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here on earth in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, He's speaking to Jews, right? He's saying you weren't redeemed because you went through the sacrifices, because you went through the tradition, because your ethnicity is Jewish, but with the precious blood of Christ. So this morning, I believe there's a call here to choose whom you will serve, because we're going to see in this passage God's same call on his people to walk intimately with him, to walk differently than those who don't know him walk. We're going to see the same fickled apathy, and we're going to see the scandalous, overwhelming, gracious, long arm of God toward his people when he should not be that way with us. So in light of that, let me do a quick review for us this morning, okay? In light of what Monty said last week, if you remember, we have two divided nations. If you look at the whole country, whole Jewish nation, we have the northern kingdom of Israel in the north. We have the southern kingdom or Judah in the south. Everybody got that mental picture in your mind? In the south, we have Judah. And we saw in chapter 7 and 8 that because of the sin of the northern kingdom, 
Assyria, which is now modern-day Turkey and Iraq and, and, and in that area more northeast of that, they were coming to crush the northern kingdom. And the reason the northern kingdom was first was twofold. One, it was closer, but secondly, uh, they were sinning and they weren't from the line of David. And so then we have the southern kingdom, Judah, that was from the line of David, where the Messiah would come. And Judah sees that happening, and he sees there's a partnership between Syria, okay, Aram or Syria, and the northern kingdom Israel. And they're going to come attack the southern kingdom. And instead of trusting the Lord, Ahaz, the king of Judah, what does he do? He doesn't trust the Lord. He panics, and he trusts his own intuition to save himself. To keep himself on the throne, and he partners with mind-blowing Assyria. Remember that? Like he goes way out of line here. But because Judah is from the line of David, where the Messiah will come, God graciously goes to him on numerous occasions and says to him, basically, as Monty laid out beautifully last week, if you trust me. I will get you out of this. He refuses, arrogantly refuses to trust God. And then the result of that we read in Isaiah 8, starting with verse 5. It says, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh, this people being people of Judah, that flow gently and rejoice over resin and the son of Remaya. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against him the waters of the river, the mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all of his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go into all the banks, and it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass up, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. Isaiah basically tells him, you're going to be destroyed as much as the people can be destroyed. It just won't kill you. It's going to come to your neck. You're going you're to nearly drown, and the only thing above water is your nose. And then all of a sudden, this passage turns like a dime. And that's where I want to take us this morning. That is, the true people of God will not be destroyed by their circumstances and their enemies. Let me read verses 9 and 10 for you here in Isaiah 8. It says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all, of, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but will not stand, for God is with us. And so Isaiah takes this turn, and from all heck breaking loose on Judah, all of a sudden Isaiah, with renewed confidence, a word from the Lord, says to Judah this, says to the true believers in Judah, he says, you will not be destroyed. Why is that? Did they deserve to be destroyed? Answer is yes. To find the answer to that, why would the Lord turn like that? We'd flip over or turn over if you need to, 
to the last verse that we're going to look at this morning, the last line of the last verse. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. They may be the most weighty words in this entire text that we read this morning. Isaiah is saying that God is a zealous God. This idea of a gentle in Jesus, meek and mild, is not wrong, but it's not complete. God's zeal or passion for his own glory is what is making him save Judah. It's what makes him save us. This Hebrew word for zeal means to be jealous, to become intensely red. What a picture. Suggesting the idea of color flooding a person's face with this flush of deep emotions. It's the same word that's used for the love that burns for a bride and a groom. It's the same word for a husband's jealousy for the love of his wife. It's this picture of God, it's this picture of God, a metaphor of God as a warrior, and he's stirring himself up for battle. Humanly speaking, if you saw Ray Lewis with the ravens, the dance he does and stirs himself up before he walks on the field, it's that times a thousand. Zephaniah 1 and 3 speak of the fire of God's zeal. Deuteronomy 4 tells us our God is a consuming fire, a zealous God. And when Jesus slung that whip in the temple and ran those crooks out, here's what the apostle John, he quotes Psalm 69 about Jesus. He said, it was zeal for God's house that consumed him. God is on fire for his glory and his grace to an undeserving people. So in the midst of Ahaz and the people being told that this combination of Syria and the northern kingdom was going to kill them, the people of God here have learned quickly one thing. God's zeal has caused them to be with him. Look at the end of verse 10. For God is with us. Say those four words with me. God is with us. That was the game changer. Now I know as well as you know. And this past year has given us a thousand examples that I do not have time nor even want to lay out what they are. We live in a crazy world where sin is blatantly celebrated that was once nearly a consensus that it was wrong and sinful. We live in a world that twists truth and even people use Bible verses to back up what they're saying. And I know we can feel like, I can feel like, that I'm the crazy one. That God's people, I'm the one that's lost my mind. Can feel like we're all alone. It can feel like, you know what, I can't. I cannot walk with God at work and where I play. I can walk with God at church. I can walk with God at home. But when I get outside of that, it feels impossible in this culture. I was in a conversation last night with a guy I didn't know on Facebook. I'd put something about the evils of killing children in the womb. Simple. Simple. 
simple and clear. And he said, you are a dark and perverted and twisted person to believe that. I just went, wow. But I am reminded in the midst of all those feelings, this is exactly where God has placed his blood-bought people. <laughs> and if it were not for his grace, I would be saying the same things as that man has said to me. Isaiah has four key words for us this morning as the people of God. That is, God is with us and he will spare us and he has not destroyed us, not because he did not deserve to destroy his fickled people. Not because we have trusted so God well. Not because you and I have been so faithful. We have a problem and he becomes the solution to that problem by giving us a guarantee. Those who know him of our salvation. And our only response is, we did not get what we deserve. And we did not do this. God did it. Ray Jonathan Edwards puts it like this. What is a true Christian? A true Christian, as he has more holy boldness, so he has less self-confidence. You feel that? As he is more sure than others of deliverance from hell, so he has a greater sense that he deserves it. Isaiah says to his people and to us, as true disciples, true followers of Christ, you will not be destroyed. Not from your circumstances and not from your enemies. Secondly, what Isaiah says here is in this context of choose now whom you will serve. The second key important thing is that the true people of God trust in the truth of God. So with this renewed clarity of what is going to happen... Isaiah sees that the king has refused to trust the Lord. Isaiah sees that the general population of people, the Jewish people, have refused to trust the Lord. And so now Isaiah turns his focus to those people who are really God's people. It's called a remnant in the Old Testament. Those who are walking by faith. How are you and I God's people? By what? By works? By tradition? Because you grew up in the church? No, by faith. It's these people that Isaiah turns his attention to. The ones that are left. And this beginning to give us this picture as I said, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you know God. And here in 11 verse 22, he does this compare and contrast between a true God follower and a false God follower. Let me start with, if I could, verse 11. Look with me. It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me, speaking to Isaiah, not to walk in the way of the people. Ironically, he starts with Isaiah himself. He reminds Isaiah not to walk in the ways of the people, not to depart from trusting God through the promises of his word. Someone once said years ago, and I remembered, even the best man or woman is at best still a what? 
man or woman. We're all vulnerable and susceptible to the fear of man. Say amen to that. To peer pressure, to cultural pressure, to wandering from the truth and being swayed by the masses, we are vulnerable. Someone said you can, we can shout Hosanna one day and the very next day crucify him. It was the divine words of God that spoke directly to Isaiah. Not Isaiah's circumstances that govern his heart. It is the word of God, like for Isaiah and us, that exerts this pressure on us. This good, healthy pressure on us to help distance us from looking like and living like those who don't know God, even if we have to stand alone. And the word of God is the only thing can exert that kind of pressure. And here's a confession from you, from me. Now, I'm not, it's funny, I'm going to confess your sins, right? No, 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 no. That would be very dangerous, okay? I would get excommunicated for that. I would be gone. Look. The more I read the scriptures, the more I want to read them. The less I read them, it's like I forget 34 years of being a Christian within a few days. You ever feel like that? And we wonder why we're not doing well spiritually. Read with me 12, 15. 12 through 15. It says, do not call conspiracy all that... This people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, those who don't know God, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear now and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, meaning northern kingdom and southern kingdom, to those who don't know God. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. And they shall be snared and taken. So Isaiah says here, The true people of God are not to fear the armies of Assyria, but to fear me, your God. It does not be, mean that the true disciples of God are fearless. It's just that their fear is directed differently. It is a vertical fear versus a horizontal fear. And that's what Isaiah speaks of here. It is a theological, if I could put it this way, a theological awareness of God at all times. That the Lord, he is the Lord Almighty, as Isaiah 1.9 says. And he is the Holy One of Israel that Monty laid out beautifully in Isaiah 6. That we walk around with that in our mind and hearts so that we will fear vertically and not horizontally. Once that's forgotten, we begin looking around for affirmation from those humans like us. And when we want affirmation, we, we blend in like a lizard. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Here's what the fear of God means. It means you and I dare to treat God as God. 
We don't respond to life in a way that makes God look helpless and weak and worthless. It's practical atheism. We need God's word to call us out of that. And how we fear God will determine, this is important, how we experience God. How we fear God will determine how you and I experience God. The text tells us we'll experience him first as a sanctuary or a stumbling block, depending on our fear of him, our awareness of him. To those who fear God, Isaiah says they'll become, God will become a sanctuary to them. A place of safety where God dwells. God's presence is the very place that marks off or defines the difference between a person who knows Christ and a person who what? Does not. A sanctuary is this glad and safe place to trust God, to repent to God, and to walk intimately with him. And then to others, Isaiah says, to both houses of Israel, to those who only know God ethnically as a Jew, not those who know God by faith. It says, who don't trust in his truth, God will become, their experience of God, he will become a stumbling block, a tripping stone, a trap or snare. They have ignored his words, and therefore they do what? They trip over him. God will become a place where unbelieving sinners receive exactly what is due to them. But not without warning. God has been desperately trying to scream and shout to them to stop on this disastrous path to their own spiritual death. I reminded just a few months ago of reading an article of a man who fell 80 feet. And maybe I shared this before. If I did, I can't remember. So, and if I can't remember, you probably can't either. So, um, fell 80 feet to his death. And to do that, he ignored the policeman who said, don't go to the cliff looking over the beach. There's some loose rocks there. He ignored gigantic signs that said, danger, warning, you will die. And he walked through a lot of yellow tape, that caution tape. And he walked through three things. And within an hour, he had slipped and fell to his death. This is Romans 1 and Isaiah 8. Romans 1 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree... <laughs> That those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval and celebrate to those who practice them. God's word, God's truth can be a sinner's greatest danger or his greatest safety. And then there's more, verse 16 through 22. Let me read quickly. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching, Isaiah says, among my disciples. See, that remnant, those true believers by faith in Yahweh. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. 
Behold, I am the children whom the Lord has given me in signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the neochromancers who chirp and mutter. We're going to look at that. What does that mean? Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look into the, to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Quickly. Isaiah says the true people of God are to bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples to preserve this neglected truth, this wisdom that comes straight from the mouth of the living God. It means to wrap up, to wrap up for yourself and for the next generation. Treasuring God's word, notice in that text, treasuring God's word and finding hope and satisfaction in God himself are inseparable. They are linked together. Notice what Isaiah says. He says, bind up the testimony, the word of God. What does that do? I will wait and hope in the Lord. Treasure the word of God, satisfaction and hope in God. Put it another way. No treasuring of the word of God, no satisfaction and hope in God. Isaiah links them as does much of scripture. And what does that look like? It looks like wait and trust. It is a patience with confidence. True disciples are not immune to the calamities of life. Say amen to that. We feel all of that. Physically, spiritually, culturally, emotionally. But within the darkness... They have and had, they have a sustaining, expectant faith and a sure hope, a steadiness in the midst of the storm. And when I'm in God's word and I am connecting with God, I have a steadiness in the storm. And when I'm not, I can get crazy. On these pages, this is what Erasmus, the first century church father said, on these pages of scripture, you will find the living Christ and you will see him more fully and more clearly than if he stood before you and you saw him with your very eyes. That's what the true disciples of God look to. This book is alive like a two-edged sword able to cut through the bone and marrow of a man's heart and soul. It's different. I've read it for 34 years. I still read it. And when I read it, things jump off at me. It's new and fresh. And when I don't read it, it fades away. It's different than any other book. But the false disciples in these verses had access to the truth of God, and yet they chose darkness that brings devastation. They too could run to God in his word, but they chose to run what I call crazy town because a lack of the word of God results 
I believe in an increase, at least two things, in superstition and an increase in self-trust. And that's what they did. I don't have time to go into all the things that you and I can run to. It could be liberal theology because it seems unfair that those who don't know Christ will spend eternity separated from him. We can't let God be God. We run to or trust our own intuition. We run to things and read things for help in our lives that we should not be reading that are straight from the pit. We run to our emotions and just trust them. Whatever we feel is right and true. We run to rage. We run to revenge. We run to all kind of crazy stuff. And here in verse 19, we see they start to inquire of mediums. That's a crazy town. When you inquire of mediums, what it means is a deliberate decision to go to a spirit so you can contact the dead through a spiritualist who claims inside knowledge, especially of the future. Instead of going to the prophet who gets a straight word from God. It says they chirp and moan as they meditate. Access to the living God and they sit there, I imagine, with their legs crossed, fingers in the air, and incense, smoking incense out of their mouth. I know it seems silly. We've seen people do that. The clear evidence of the intentional withdrawal from God. How ironic I thought it is to see, to consult, it is to consult the dead for information about the living. Is that, it's mind-blowing, but we do the same thing in a lot of different ways. You have to examine your heart like I do. So I ask you, where do you go to withdraw from God? Do you just stay busy? Do you stay stuck to your phone? Do you not make any time for God? You get up in the morning, you just go, you veg, you sleep. You, you Look, withdrawing from God, there's an intentionality to it here. Just like there's an intentionality to connect with God. I ask this, are you reading the scriptures? As verse 20 says, when it lays out where they go, the first thing Isaiah responds in verse 20, he says, they are to run to the teaching, to the testimony of God's word. Verse 21 through 22 gives us the conclusion, the implications. With no truth about God, people are left spiritually and emotionally exasperated, without hope, no future, distress. They, they have these dark rooms that they consulted the dead in, in, and in divine justice, God gave them what they wanted. Darkness all around and a dark future. Turn your TV on and you will see people that this is describing because their lack of God's word. But Ray Orland puts it like this for us that know Christ. He says, when we leave God out, by not being the people of his word, this is important, our logic and our emotions both lose their way. And it happens fast, folks. Without even realizing it, 
our humanness starts to die and we become spiritually blind to the ways of our great God. Don't you think it can happen to you quickly? Quickly. And within a week or a month or two, you're a whole different person. Lastly, we close up. The true people of God as we choose whom we will serve have a faithful king to follow. Verses 9, 1 through 7. So, here's the beautiful news. In contrast to King Ahab, King Ahaz, who refused to obey and trust God, the Lord would raise up a faithful king that would be that would be born and reign forever over his people Israel, that would lead his people correctly, unlike King Ahaz. God's people may be overwhelmed, but they will not be overthrown. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. This is beautiful. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This northern kingdom, part that he's talking about here in this passage, these tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, they were part of the northern kingdom. They were part when the Syrians came down that the Syrians were going to crush first. It was called the highway of the sea is how they were going to travel and destroy the northern kingdom. And it says this area is going to be turned into gloom. It's going to be darkness. It's going to be crushed. There's going to be death and dying there. But there will be a great light. There will be a great light coming. It will be glorious one day. And just a side note here. It is important to know if you read Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17, Jesus speaks here. He starts his first ministry ever in these same regions. What was dark now became glorious through Christ starting his ministry there. It's an amazing passage and actually quotes Isaiah. And then in verses 2 through 4, let me just quickly read those and wrap those up for us. It says, the people who have walked in darkness is seen of great light. This is the future king. This is Christ. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them as light has shined. You, speaking of God, God, you have multiplied the nations. There's an extension here of the grace of God not only of Israel, but to the Gentiles when Christ comes. You have increased in joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. In the harvest, uh, in the harvest time, they would uh, rejoice because of the crops. And it says, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So there's great joy like you won a war. And it says, for the yoke, verse 4, of his burden... And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the yoke of his burden is the law. Now it's gone and there's this new reign of grace. And it's going to be done just like God destroyed the powerful Midianites with 300 people. Not by might, not by power, but by what? My spirit, says the Lord, just like admitting, I'm going to do something that's overwhelmingly has nothing to do with you. 
And then verse 6. Here's how this liberation from doom and, and darkness comes about. It is through a child. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name should be called Wonderful Counselor. Nobody like him. We don't have to counsel ourselves. We don't have to go. Look, we have one. Mighty God. Omnipotent. Everlasting Father. Not to be confused with our Heavenly Father, but one who's born a baby, yet is eternal. And treats us graciously and tenderly like a father would care for his children and then lastly, Prince of Peace, that there can be peace not only between God and man, but between man and man. That those who know Christ, no matter their ethnicity, their culture, their uh, economic status, there can be peace. That's what he does. I want to ask you this morning, as we think through, <clears throat> through this big idea whom do you serve? <clears throat> I want to say Isaiah 8 and 9 <clears throat> directly links the answer to that question with your connection and time and consistency in the truth of God's word. Would you ask that question this morning? What does that look like for you? Take a minute to do that.